Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're going to be talking about the global drug chain. It's all interlinked from producer countries to supply countries to demand countries. These are all issues that are wide-ranging, interlinking, and affect every single one of us. So this is Stop and Search on Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Let's go straight into the episode because the guests introduced themselves. This is a panel discussion and it was recorded live at Waterstones Tottenham Court Road. And as ever, if you want to follow us on social media, at UK Leap on Instagram and Twitter and our Facebook and website is UKLeap.org. So let's talk about the global drug chain. Hi, I'm Neil. I'm the chairman of Leap UK, um, former undercover police officer. And then Juan, if you can introduce yourself, please. Um, I'm Juan Fernandez. I work as campaigns and communications officer for the International Drug Policy Consortium. And then Tom, if you can introduce yourself, please. I'm Tom Wainwright. I'm a journalist at The Economist and the author of Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. Brilliant. Um, so I'm, I think I'm going to start with you, Neil, because there's so much. I was, I was reading Tom's book, Narconomics, down here, and I think there was a lot in it that's going to appeal to you because there's some fascinating things that didn't even occur to me working in this business that Tom describes the supply chain not so much as a triangle like we may think. So, so you know, you've got your production companies and the head honchos that trickle down into the, the supply chain and the and the in the streets of London, the dealer being the bottom point. But Tom describes it more of an hourglass. So you've still got that big section of production, but then it comes down into the middlemen. And what you make the point of, don't you, Tom, is that the production side of things, if you want to disrupt it, then potentially going for the middlemen means that you're going to get more disruption. Would you agree with that from your position as an undercover cop? Yeah, I mean, the, the word disruption is actually really interesting because in the last um, few years, in, in the certainly consumer countries, certainly in the UK, whenever the police talk about tackling an organised crime group which are in charge of, a say, a regional supply, police talk about disrupting them. Whereas police used to talk about, in, in sort of much more positive terminology, they would talk about rid, ridding the streets of these evildoers um, and, and that, that used to be the sort of um, the tagline or, or the headlines in any in any local newspaper or whatever. But now they re- almost universally use the word disrupt. And, and there's a sort of pragmatic admit, uh, pragmatically admitting that that actually th- that they can't win. I think there's almost there's a there's a sort of change in attitude from the police. But for me, that word's important because policing, from my experience, not just from undercover work, but from um, looking at the whole market as, a, as from conventional policing as well. Policing never reduces the size of the market. It only, it only disrupts it. So if, if policing, certainly, I, I mean, I'm talking from a sort of regional supply, say the supply in the, in the northwest of England, for example, you know, you can disrupt it and you can arrest some of the big players, the, the, the middle, the wholesalers, if you like, but the, 
someone always steps in that just creates an opportunity for somebody else so so for me the dis- the word disrupt is important to focus on because you, know, you, you can suggest yeah you you may well be able to disrupt the market much more by targeting that group but you still don't reduce it you only change the shape of it and what that practically means is that it usually means an increase in violence while there's a jostling for position so that disruption it, it, it's sold as a positive thing by police at the moment, but I, I can't see it as such. Uh, was that a surprise to you, Tom, within it, when you thought of it in terms of an hourglass shape? And you also use a brilliant example of sexual health in, in a school in America and how... I'll let you explain, actually, of what, what how that relates. I'm just trying to remember. Um, <laughs> the um, Oh, no, let's see. So the... Um, if I put you on the spot, I think I might be able to kind of queue it up a little bit I think I, I can remember what you the, the study that you're referring to I'm just trying to remember exactly that, so th- this was a, a, the study that we're talking about is um, a, a study that um, was done some years ago at a high school in the United States and it was it was called something like chains of affection and it, basically the, the researchers the social scientists involved I'm not sure you'd be allowed to do it these days but they interviewed a load of teenagers about their exes basically in, in the school um, and they built up a kind of romantic map of the school and who who had been out with whom, um, and they they put together a, a map showing that basically, you know, everybody was connected to everybody else via some other partner or other, um, and it was the the I think that the the thing about this that struck me as potentially interesting drug wise it's slightly tenuous and I can probably explain it better in the book than I can here but the drugs efforts are often focused on um, the people who are likely to have the most interactions with people, the, the people who are likely to sell to the highest number of people. Um, but in this study about um, relationships at the American school, the researchers who were interested mostly in stopping um, STDs being passed on reached the conclusion that actually focusing on the people who had the most partners didn't necessarily make sense. You could focus on people who had only one partner and if you could kind of break the chain there in terms of transmission of illness then it meant that everybody subsequent to them in the chain uh was no longer at risk um and it just struck me that with with the drugs business you might find something similar it it might be quite difficult to focus on people who sell to very very many people but if you have a similar kind of network then by focusing on people who sell to relatively few customers if you break the link there everybody further down the chain might be you know no, no longer part of it, and it might be easier to do that than focusing on the really uh, the people who interact with a lot of people. So it's as I say, it's a slightly weird comparison, but um, uh, the, the book probably explains it better than I can. We we do always talk in, talk in terms of chains that we want. It's always the drug chain. You know, it makes sense. It's a good analogy. From your position, I mean, you're you're really faced with this, aren't you? you you've you've seen both personally and professionally what goes on in in producing and production com- uh, countries, especially Latin America. Does it does it make sense? It's a chain that everything is interlinked somewhere along the line. Um, yeah, but it's it's also we when when we talk about the drug market, I think we have to avoid um, solidifying too much how we conceive it because it's incredibly um, uh, resilient and it adapts quite easily to um, enforcement responses. Um, probably when I was born um, in Venezuela, um, the country wasn't as much of an important hub uh, of transit for cocaine uh, towards Europe, whereas when I left, I was um, 18 and I left when uh, in 2008. Uh, but by 2014, I'm sure, it had become the most important point of transit to, of drugs to Europe. About 50% of the cocaine um, that left Latin America goes through uh, Venezuela. I'm completely sure that wasn't the case when I was growing up. So um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is avoiding to um, think of producing transit and consumer countries in such fixed manners because... Um, even countries that traditionally we consider or we associate to production or we associate to transit have become consuming countries or or have um, markets that are expanding rapidly. Um, so yeah, I think the the bottom line would be um, 
for me in any case, is that even if you did a really good job at um, increasing the intelligence and um, rationality of law enforcement responses, um, you would find it incredibly hard to overall reduce um, the market itself. Um, I, I very much uh, enjoyed the, the hourglass diagram and, and, and thinking smartly about law enforcement. Um, I don't think ultimately that's what I would um, believe in. Um, I think we need to find completely different ways of um, approaching the, the challenges related to drugs. When we talk enforcement, we don't just mean a point of arrest on the street. What enforcement means is internationally, with what we've, what we've done to try and restrict the supply, one of them being eradication programs, which uh, you're going to be a better one to speak on that than me, but they're pretty horrific, aren't they? I mean, yeah, for, I think it is also problematic to talk about, um, I mean, I, I've seen the, the rhetoric on drug policy change dramatically in the last 10 years, and there's more and more governments talking about public health and um, a sort of compassionate approach towards uh, drug users. But people who cultivate crops deemed illicit are equally or actually even more in disprivileged in situations of oppression than many of the users that you um, find in um, Europe or North America. Um, so the, the ideal drug policy that I want to see emerge will take as a point of departure the micro-trafficker in Ecuador who has uh, four kids and no means to provide for them would take into account the um, tiny family in the middle of the Chaparro, in the middle of the Yungas in Bolivia who do not have any other sort of access to a market or a source of income. Um, so yeah, uh, eradication, um, as, as Tom mentioned, has been disastrous. It is, um, there are ways of doing it better um, than not. Um, so currently, for example, Colombia is involved in a peace process um, that finally uh, has seen the disbandment of the FARC, the traditional guerrilla or historical guerrilla group of the country, together with other ones. Um, it's, it's supposed to, it's considered the longest uh, conflict um, in the face of the earth, uh, armed conflict. Um, and as part of that agreement, the government has um, acknowledged the need to only engage in eradication after um, hearing from communities and agreeing a way of deploying um, eradication strategies in a way that doesn't harm the livelihoods of, of farmers. In practice, that's not how it um, has worked or is working. Um, you have pressures from the United States recently um, uh, coming up with figures of cultivation of coca in Colombia saying, well, actually your uh, hectares of um, coca are uh, spinning out of control, so you need to solve that issue. You have at the same time um, the United Nations Office for Drugs and Crime saying we're going to give you $350 million dollars in order to boost eradication pro uh, programs. Um, what does the Colombian government do? It goes full on with military and police uh, forces into um, completely isolated places of the country. And when farmers protest this uh, forcible entry into their farms and into their um, cultivation grounds, um, they get shot. And recently, uh, we have seen uh, a dozen of um, farmers and community leaders um, killed as a result. So um, if eradication is to work, it must start with um, the community being involved in what are the conditions for such an, a program. I love the ambient noise we get above the streets of us as well. That's just perfect. Um, and Tom, you totally make the point in the book of, of what eradication causes, not just on the ground literally, but also it creates this weird cultural divide, doesn't it? Like the consumer countries historically like the UK and America, 
the ones that also got big stakes in the UN, we're also creating the conditions where governments such as Latin America are having to fight the war on drugs quite literally within this. And, and we've got our hands off of this. And is that is that just a really... Are we creating conditions where we're going to have a, more of a cultural divide through that? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think as far as Western countries are concerned, it's very convenient that the war on drugs, which are mostly consumed in our countries... Um, is being fought on the other side of the world. I mean, the the best way to drive up the price of drugs, the most effective way to drive up the price of drugs would be to send the army into cities in America. You know, I, I don't think it would be a good idea, but you would very quickly see a, a spike in the price of drugs if you did that. Um, but, you know, the American government quite rightly doesn't want to do that uh, and quite wrongly thinks that instead it should um, uh, pursue a similar policy in, in other countries. Um, I mean, the, I think the main problem, though, with eradication is that it just doesn't work. I mean, if if this policy could prevent people from taking these drugs, which kill thousands of people every year and enrich organized crime and so on, then, you know, you, you might consider it. But it just it, it's not working. Um, and people are increasingly not shy about saying that. There's a guy um, uh, who was president of Guatemala until recently called Otto Perez Molina. And he was quite interesting because he was—he used to be in the Guatemalan army. He was the head of military intelligence, um, and he—he he ran for president on the slogan "Mano Dura," which mean, literally means hard hand or you know iron fist or something like that. And yet, on his election, he stunned everybody by coming out in favor of legalization of, of all drugs. Um, and he—I asked him about this, and he said it was because he, on becoming president, he went back to a field that he had personally overseeing the eradication of uh, poppy, fe poppy um, fields this was in Guatemala he, he said he'd, he personally eradicated it of poppies three times or something and on becoming president he came back and lo and behold there they were again and the the futility of it was what persuaded him and many others in Guatemala that um, what they were doing wasn't working anyway he's now as far as I know in, in prison on grounds of corruption of some sort so <laughs> not not a model in every sense but um on, on drugs at least he surprised people and I think probably was on the right track there's an interesting point about Otto Perez Molina um also not only um his demise um but also in 2012 after being elected he um planned a meeting of Latin American well mostly Central American countries um, to discuss the this possibility, um, which in Central America has been, particularly in Central America, it has been an enormous um, taboo. Um, as he announced the meeting of Central American governments, I think it was Janet Napolitano, the Secretary of State of the U.S., decided that it was the time to um, conduct a tour of uh, Central American capitals. Um, neither, like, no precedent of Central America. I think there was only Laura Chinchilla um, that attended the meeting. Because, of course, even though um, the Obama years and, 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 and other developments with um, the U.S. America, uh, drug policy in the region and, in general, involvement in the region um, has given the impression that things have changed in the relationship between um, the U.S. and Latin America, um, they still have a very um, robust um, grip on how certain countries in Latin America um, carry out policies, particularly when it comes to drug policies. Can you can you literally explain what fumigation is and aerial aerial eradication is, and what the implications of that are on the ground? Yeah, I mean, this is a terribly destructive policy that um, has received condemnation from the World Health Organization and, and human rights bodies because the idea is that essentially you load a plane with glyphosate um, roundup. It's a, it's a product that um, destroys all plant matter. Um, it's not selective at all. Um, so you, you essentially fumigate a field where you think coca is growing and you destroy the coca. The thing is, it is not always, and I don't know if rarely, uh, but perhaps rarely the case that a farmer will only grow coca, like they grow coca and they grow subsistence crops for their families. Um, so what you end up is all of their subsistence destroyed, um, plus um, the Roundup in particular glyphosate is supposed to, well, it's associated or correlated with um, cancer um, and it contaminates uh, the soils and, and impover impoverishes soils and um, water. 
Um, so for the longest time, um, Colombia has partially relied on aerial fumigation. It stopped. Um, but after receiving pressure from um, certain parts of the government itself, um, the state, the Colombian state itself, and um, the United States, um, there has been talk about resuming aerial fumigation. Yeah. Isn't it right as well that um, coca actually grows back quicker than any of the other plants? From from they're, they're more resistant. It's actually more resistant than the other plants that glyphosate kills. If I'm not wrong, and perhaps Tom will know this better than me, but I'm pretty sure it has two or three yields per year in the chapara and the yunga. So it it is a very hardy. I mean, it is the it is a. I mean, and this is something that perhaps hasn't been mentioned, and and it's extremely important. I think. Um, Coca is a plant that has been a part of the Andean culture for millennia. This is a plant that has been chewed for at least 2,000 years in Bolivia and in Peru. Um, it's a plant that's uh, intertwined with um, the culture and traditions of indigenous peoples in certain countries of Latin America. So this is, this is literally the home of the plant, and, and it's a very hardy plant. Um, that is embedded in the cultural and traditional practices of um, many communities. So not only there's the issue of like, it, it's, it's a hardy plant and it's very productive, but this is the historical home of coca. And, and this is where it's creating some international divide, isn't it? Bolivia historically have chewed coca leaf, not cocaine, co chewed coca leaf. And, and you mentioned it in the book, don't you, Tom, that it's not just that. They, you know, they also brew it in a tea and things like that. We've now got to the point where Bolivia have managed to get a kind of concession on, on the UN that they are historically allowed that now, aren't they? Yeah, they have. Um, they, I, I mean, Bolivia is an interesting example because the, the president, Evo, Evo Morales, is himself a former cocoa grower or a, a cocoa uh, union leader. Um, and the, I mean, it's, it's true. It's, it's part of the culture there. And if you go to a hotel in La Paz, you'll be offered coca tea. It's, you know, it's not a kind of hard drug. Um, they used to serve it in the American embassy until not that long ago. Um, but the, um, I don't know. I, I think it's worth being a little bit sceptical about some of the claims they make. If you look at the amount of coca that's grown in Bolivia and compare it with the amount that's sold on the legal markets there, there's quite a big difference. Um, and, you know, it's the government of Evo Morales has promoted things like um, coca-infused toothpaste and, uh, you know, all kinds of... They, they have a thing... I think they have a drink called Coca-Cola, in fact, which is a, you know, a, a coca-containing drink. Um, and that's all fine as far as it goes, but quite a lot of the growing in Bolivia is you know not intended for traditional use it's it makes its way to um, very often to Brazil and from there uh, either it stays in Brazil or goes to Europe uh, to be turned into cocaine so uh, I, I think you know a bit of skepticism is needed on all sides um, but it's certainly true that for for many people in that part of the world coca is a traditional pretty harmless thing and, and where it's interesting for the UK isn't it Neil that Obviously, the cocaine is is grown and produced there, and then it comes down to our streets. And with it, I, I'm always quoting your book, Tom. It's, it's just so good. I'm always <laughs> I keep going for it. But Tom makes the point that it has to get to us somehow. You know, we don't grow this ourselves. So borders, um, the borders have been gradually getting more and more narrow across the Mexico, for example, into the United States. But the less chance there is for the borders, the more the value gets inflated because there's higher risk, there's less chance of things coming through. And that trickles down into what you see, surely, that the greater the risk of something, the more prices go up, the more it doesn't disrupt supply necessarily. It just means that things become riskier and harder and people are getting more and more violent to control these. Yeah, but I, I would challenge the idea that... Um enforcement either at borders or or in the production countries or here has actually driven the price up i would challenge that completely i mean um heroin for example in 1993 i was buying heroin say i was buying a small amount um an average of 0.12 of a gram and i would be paying 10 pounds for that 14 years later i was paying 10 pounds for the same amount and over that period of time the purity the average purity had gone up so that's a fairly inflation-proof commodity, I would say. I, 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 don't, I can't think there's any other commodity that would actually stay the same, same price and go, and go up in purity. So 
and the, and the only thing that's actually decreased the price of or, or, or dropped the purity of heroin is um, an, a, a, an outbreak of poppy blight in Afghanistan. So it's actually nothing to do with policing whatsoever. And I, I was privy as a police officer to uh, international intelligence about seizures. And actually, for countries such as the UK and most consumer countries, for, for cocaine and heroin, we never seize more than 1% of the commodity at the borders. Now, most high street businesses have, have a write-off around 5%. Supermarkets write off 5% for food loss. Shops like Marks and Spencers write off 5%, certainly in December, just for shoplifting. So 1% losses as an international business, I would say, is, uh, is pretty impressive. So, so, but, but it is always stated by people who support prohibition that, that that is one of the reasons why we do it, to, to maintain the price, to make it more difficult. But I think all we're doing is increasing the profits. This is why Neil is such an interesting person. It's like, yeah, I was buying heroin five years ago. It's like, as you do, you know, it's Christmas and all that. <laughs> but I, I don't think I explained the point very well, Tom, that um, with borders, I mean, you use the example of Juarez in, in, in your book, which is just, you know, it's now become a cultural icon of just being its own wasteland of just, you know, its own its own area now. Um all the while you ha you narrow the borders down into those funnel points, they become hot territory, don't they, and hotly contested. Yeah, no, that's right. It's it's noticeable that in Mexico, the places that have seen the the most sort of epic levels of violence are those pinch points. So Ciudad Juarez is one because, as you say, it's a crucial, crucial um, staging post on the journey of cocaine from the Andes to um, uh, to the United States. Um, port cities like um, uh, Acapulco would be one or Lazaro Cárdenas have seen violence for similar reasons if you control those cities then you really control the business in that part of the country um, so it's again it's, it's funny people assume that border cities are violent and border crossing areas are violent and so let's close them down and, and that way we'll have less violence and I think in a way it's kind of the opposite. If, if you close them down, if you have fewer and fewer border crossing points, then it becomes more and more crucial that Mexico's various different cartels control them. So the, the stakes for them are raised. They're, if anything, they're going to be more likely to fight for control over those if there are just a handful of them um, than they are if, if there are lots of them. So it might sound counterintuitive, but if you're seeing lots of violence at your border crossings, it might actually make sense to have more of them rather than fewer of them. Does that relate to what you have seen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that make, makes complete sense to me. I mean, um, I think a, a lot of the traditional gang violence that we've had from some of the organised crime, crime groups in Liverpool has been because that's that's been one of the most important ports in order to to import. So you, through the nineties, the really important ports ports were uh, Glasgow and Liverpool. But you had the most powerful of the organised crime groups in the UK because of those relationships with the port. So yeah, that, uh, absolutely. I, I, I've seen that, and that makes a lot of sense. Would you agree as well, one that from your experience of of how production companies have to operate, that uh, uh, sorry, production countries have to operate, that risks goes up all the while that there is this territorial battle, um, and that surely impacts on, as you said, domestic farmers aren't necessarily a cartel; they're just there going through the motions, trying to earn a living. Yeah, completely. And I think that's a, an analysis that translates very well to the um, crypto drug markets that are also mentioned in the book. Um, what we've seen after law enforcement operations, big drug law enforcement operations um, directed against, well, the original um, Silk Road, um, was that the second Silk Road not only um, loses some of its original mo most um, positive um, purposes, but it also readapts and um, comes up with new solutions to facilitate um, uh, confidentiality and, and security for the selling and buying uh, parties. Um, in general, law enforcement action, especially forcible law enforcement action, um, tends to um, either uh, increase violence because there's a re readjustment to take place that very often involves different competing actors. Um, but when it happens digitally, um, 
it also means that you are increasing the resilience of the new product that will replace that. So Silk Road 2, um, and there's really interesting uh, work on that by the Global Drug Policy Observatory in the University of Swansea, um, uh, the technologies used in order to increase confidence by buyers and sellers in the second version of the Silk Road are substantially more refined and sophisticated than the first one. And I think we'll continue seeing that. Um, it is, yeah, it is quite futile. I, I don't, I, <laughs> I, I don't want to appear as being only negative towards law enforcement, but I guess the, the best way law enforcement authorities could approach these challenges is to try as best to work with the community and support the community. Um, to protect the well-being of the community, and they're clearly not doing that. And that's where, I mean, Neil's testimony, Leap's testimony, but also in the book, uh, Tom, you also make that point that there are some drug, drug warriors, in quotation marks, that are still out there hanging on to this idealism of, you know, we're going to deter people through the law. But there's also a lot of holding in the hands up, isn't there, that we need multifaceted approaches to this, and one of them is market conditions. And, and as you mentioned there, one that the digital economy is certainly changing things on its head, isn't it? You, you sat there browsing the digital economy, haven't you? Yeah, no, it's, I think it is changing things. It's quite, it's interesting as well. I mean, it's um, some of the things that are going on on those online sites, like, you know, the Silk Road that was shut down and its successors, um, show, in some ways, show the ways in which legalization could be quite useful. I mean, it, it's quite... Interesting. If you look at these sites, um, you can read reviews. It's, it's a lot like eBay, actually. A lot of them are set up to look, you know, to literally to, to resemble eBay. Um, you can leave feedback for the sellers. Uh, you can see what kind of percentage positive rating they all have and so on. Um, and when you're selling uh, a product like an illegal drug, which potentially has the, you know, could, could be very dangerous to the person consuming it. I think it's quite valuable to have that mechanism for feedback. You know, it's a, a way for consumers to protect each other and, and um, uh, you know, consumers, if they see that a seller has a thousand positive reviews, they know that that person might be a fraction more reliable than somebody who's brand new to the site. And it's hardly foolproof, but, you know, it might be a bit safer than buying them through your friend's sister's friend in the back of a pub or, or wherever you might otherwise get them. Um, so I think that the internet in some ways offers a, a glimpse of what legalized regulation could do. It offers a chance to do sort of informal testing and, and feedback. So it's, it's some interesting kind of models going on there. There's an inter interesting addition to that, of course, is that people don't have to risk themselves being robbed as well. And it actually removes that element of, uh, of violence in the marketplace and protects people. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a great step forward, the dark web. And interesting fact I've seen recently is that 17% of uh, drugs purchased in Europe now are through the dark web and it's climbing. So uh, obviously the market's changing. There's an interesting parallel as well, actually, with the past. Some, you know, the murder rate in New York fell very, very drastically in the 1990s. And some people think that that might be because it was around that time that drug dealers adopted, first of all, pagers and then mobile phones. And what that meant was that it was no longer so important to control physical territory. It used to be that you had to control a corner because that was where you sold your drugs. Once people got pagers and phones, the business you know, it no longer was a territorial business. It was one in which people would order over the phone and, and have it delivered. Um, and that meant there was less opportunity for, for violence between dealers and between dealers and customers. Um, the one thing I do just want to add, though, about the dark web that, that makes it, you know, not, not a, a total success story is that it, it's consumers might feel that they're buying in a, a more kind of controlled and clean way. And I think in many ways they are. But You've got to remember the people that are providing them with these drugs ultimately at the other end of the chain are the same people providing the, the drugs any other way. So if you buy cocaine on the Silk Road or whatever, um, some of your money ultimately is still going to the people in Mexico who are cutting off people's heads and so on. It's, you know, it, it's, it feels, it might feel a bit more like a kind of fair trade way of buying drugs, but it's, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to comment on something else but perhaps I will also on that um, so on the first bit and and I definitely agree there's a perhaps false sense of security um, when it comes to crypto drug markets because um, although they do have this peer reviewing um, 
facility, which is really interesting. Um, another study by the GDPO um, realized that after the first uh, Silk Road was closed, while the new one was safer in terms of confidentiality, um, some aspects of the original market had disappeared, for instance, or had significantly changed. So, for instance, there was a forum in the first um, uh, iteration of the Silk Road um, that initially was focused around um, su uh, peer support, so uh, a sort of like endogenous um, community harm reduction initiative. People exchange information about um, uh, drug use and uh, it seemed to be way more active on the first iteration. So after law enforcement intervened, um, the sort of community aspect of the Silk Road started to wane. And the second one is that while there is um, this peer review system, um, there have been studies that suggest in certain locations the uh, suggested purity that sellers indicate in their pages is not really correlating all that nicely with the actual products that people are getting. Um, which, of course, I mean, it, it, is, it, is a, it is still not a legally regulated market and um, asymmetries of information will be all over the place. Um, I, I just want to um, make a point about this, um, and, and you make it in the book, and I, I found it really uh, adequate and, and appropriate. Um, while it is true that your cocaine money might be um, partially feeding off a system that um, ends up, to a certain extent, contributing to violence, um, it also contributes to many people's livelihoods, and... Um, I don't think it is completely um, fair to describe, to allocate to the user the full burden of the ethical um, conundrum that is drug use. Um, I think definitely consumption under capitalism of any sort of good um, uh, or most goods that we can uh, purchase involves ethical dilemmas. I I sometimes feel, I mean, perhaps cocaine is not the best example because we know that, for example, London is the consuming capital of Europe and we know where that happens and it's not very far from here. Um, and it's, He's looking at you guys. And it's not, it's not the poorest in the city. Um, but I think we must be careful when we um, allocate the burden of the ethical challenges of drug consumption to users because, um, well, it is true. Um, I don't think one would make the same, not everyone would make the same case with the same um, 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 strength or rigor uh, to people buying clothes in Primark. And they're probably also contributing to violence and exploitation of peoples all over the world. I, I, I'm glad you know that there's one thing that at last we disagree on a little bit because I think you know we've all been <laughs> very much on the same page. I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I want to make the other case actually. I, I think there's absolutely no comparison um, between buying cheap clothes and, and buying illicit drugs. I mean, it's 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 true that if you buy cheap clothes, then um, you should be aware of the risk that those clothes are being made in a, a factory that hasn't properly been inspected or they um, uh, might be being made by people who aren't paid properly. I don't think that compares with the certainty that when you buy cocaine, some of your money is paying the wages of people who murder and torture people as part of their business model. I mean, all of the world's supply of cocaine comes from just three countries. The whole supply is managed by organizations that, that use violence as a, you know, explicitly as part of their way of doing business. Um, and there is, there's no escape from the, the certainty that if you've bought cocaine, then some of your money has gone to pay the wages of the guy with the chainsaw or the pliers or the blowtorch. And, it, you know, that's not, not the same, I don't think, of, um, buying cheap clothes. You know, there, there are risks and I think consumers need to educate themselves and governments certainly need to, um, uh, be more careful about regulating. But I think that, uh, equate buying something from organized crime with 
you know, the, the everyday risks of global trade under capitalism is is a, a kind of false equivalence. Yeah. So. Just just to add, I'm I'm not trying to equate it, but to compare it. Sure. Um, and um, yeah, um, it, it's mostly a comparison. Uh, of course, uh, you, you're absolutely right. The the levels of violence that we might see associated to illicit drugs and the illicit drug market might not be comparable to the levels of violence. Although, although one could argue um, of um, yeah, I I agree. I agree with the basic point. This this is really interesting. This it comes up a lot, doesn't it, Neil? Of the point of responsibility, and I think from and I'm just speaking myself here, but surely we have to place responsibility on a policy that's got us into this position in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that was a really good point raised there because um, y you're not going to solve the uh, global warming crisis by trying to shame people out of taking their summer holidays and using the jet fuel. That adds to it. You know that you, you cannot put the responsibility on the individuals because that lets, lets the state off the hook. This is a policy problem and it can only be solved by that. And in fact... It, it, as, as someone who um, talks about drug law reform a lot, to be honest, that the fact that drug use is going up, to me, that's useful because that's what's going to bring the pressure on to change this situation. And, and this situation has to be changed. It has to be. So I, I, I'm very resistant at, at using the line that uh, you as a consumer, you are responsible. I mean, yeah, I, I get the argument. I understand that. But it, it's it's not going to change things, and actually, by pursuing that as uh, as a debating point, and to, and to actually say that it's that it's up to all individuals, well, that's that's the prohibitionist stance that that wants to keep the status quo and keep keep a um, harsh law enforcement. It it feeds into the sort of uh, moral judgments, which actually fuels the problem that we're in. So so I, d I just don't think it's a useful a useful um, point. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can I just respond? I, I mean... I. I completely I agree that the you know the, the important thing is to change policy because that's how things will actually change and you can't just go around lecturing people and, and hoping that they'll change their minds. But one practical thing, one practical consequence of, of that approach that concerns me a bit is the belief of some governments that decriminalization is all they need to do. So decriminalizing use of, of illegal drugs I think it you know has a lot to be said for it it means that people who use them um, no longer face sanctions which aren't going to do them any good it's you know it frees up policemen to do more you know more useful things I, I think decriminalization makes a lot of sense but I remember having a lot of conversations with um, politicians in Mexico who said actually look from our point of view that's the worst possible situation it, it, if anything is likely to stimulate demand in consumer countries because if people face uh, softer consequences if anything they'll probably consume a bit more and it doesn't do anything to address the fact that these drugs are uh, controlled by organized crime um, 
And that's why I think the focus, if anything, has to be on legalization, which means not only that consumers are, are protected and so on, but it means that the whole business is taken out of the hands of criminals and, and brought into the, into the daylight and into the regulated legal world. So I, my, my worry about the kind of, you know, drug users only deserve sympathy and, and, you know, no one should criticize them for their moral choices argument is that it, it just means that decriminalization becomes a very easy end point for countries like ours to aim for. When in fact, I, I think it kind of ignores what to me is, is the more horrific problem really of what's going on in, in supply countries. And, and that's why legalization of, of the supply side is something that we really have to think about seriously. Would you agree with that? One, do you think there's a sustainability issue within this that we need to set up more in our way of dealing with things so that we aren't just letting ourselves off the hook in the UK and the US, but we need to think about more responsibility to what's going on in Latin America? Yeah, completely. I I just, I struggle, and, and Neil has put it uh, in in a better way than, than me, I, I struggle with pointing fingers at the user because... Um, Although it is true that in recent years, um, the perception of people who use drugs has changed dramatically and, and the idea of a public health approach has um, facilitated new understandings of, of what drug use is about and what drug dependence is about and what problematic drug use is about. Um, I do not think in general the stance towards people who use drugs is positive of or free of stigma, on the contrary. Um, so whenever somebody is suggesting um, uh, that the moral uh, responsibility for um, balancing out the ethics of the illicit drug market um, fall upon the user, I, I always um, react quite strongly because I feel it, it, it creates uh, an unfair um, unbalance. That said, Yes, I, I do believe there are ethical. Um, uh, there is an ethical impact to the consumption of cocaine. Of course, uh, of course, I I would never deny that. Um, now, when it comes to decriminalization and le legal regulation, I, um, as IDPC, what we try to do is to encourage spaces for discussion to advance towards drug policy that increases, that truly increases well-being. Um, for the many and particularly for uh, most affected communities. Um, I think decriminalization does have enormous virtues and we've seen them in different parts of the world, uh, particularly around uh, uh, creating an enabling environment to deploy public health interventions. Um, we've seen, I mean, in, in Portugal, it's, it's, it's almost I mean, it's something that has to be seen to be believed, like passing from uh, 1,016 new infections, new um, cases of HIV among people who inject drugs per year uh, to, in 2000 or 1999 to 50, 55 uh, nowadays is remarkable. I think there are very few um, policy interventions that have had that kind of catalytic effect, and I say catalytic because it's it's of course not only decriminalization, it's decriminalization and the deployment of a whole battery of public health um, interventions. Um, that said, yes, uh, decriminalization is not going to solve um, the issue of, of illegal supply, and and that must be addressed. Have we got any questions? We got we got, I reckon we can do two if we're lucky. I think we got a brave one here. Thank you so much. What's your name as well, by the way? Um, my name is Dara. Uh, Tom, I have a question f mainly for you. Um, did you have an idea of the breakdown? So if someone spends, let's say, 90, 90 pounds worth of cocaine in London, do you have an idea of uh, how mu what proportions of that money goes to what places and how much of it goes to the cartel back in uh, Colombia or whatever? Uh, yes and no. Um in the book, I do break it down in that way, but for the United States rather than for Britain. Um, and I, I can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but the, the one, one interesting thing is that the, the biggest jump actually takes, the biggest jump in price of the product along the supply chain takes place in the United States. So from memory, this is for cocaine in America, the, the kind of journey of cocaine, if you like, the, so the, the ingredients for a, a kilo of cocaine 
As I mentioned, in Colombia it begins at $500 for the leaf. Once it's made into cocaine in Colombia, it's, it's in the low thousands. I think when it leaves Colombia, it's kind of 9,000 or so. When it arrives in Los Angeles, it's more like 20,000. And then by the time it gets to the, the dealer, you're looking at more like 80,000. So the big jump happens there. That's according to data that I got from um, a think tank in LA called the RAND organization, which is, I think, the best one on, on this stuff. Um, so it's interesting. It's, it means that the, the biggest jump actually takes place in the consumer country. And I guess that the reason for that is that the, the person doing that job it's a very, very difficult job. I mean, that's the person who takes charge of a huge quantity of the stuff that's been imported. It could, you know, it could be a ton and has to break that down into quantities small enough for mid-level dealers to want to take charge of. So this guy could be breaking it down into quantities of a kilo or two. So he needs to know or she needs to know perhaps, you know, scores, if not hundreds of contacts um, who are willing to take this stuff. They're operating in a country where law enforcement is pretty good, um, where prisons are quite hard to escape from. You know, the risks are very, very serious in that sense. They need a pretty big web of contacts. So it's a difficult, risky job, which I think explains why those guys are able to charge the, the highest premium. Um, that was the evidence that I came across. Um, I don't know, Neil, if that uh, coincides with what, what you found, if, if those people are the ones who really make the biggest profits in the chain. Yeah, that's the way I understand it. Um, certainly looking at the figures coming into the UK, it, it's doubling the profits at the point when it comes into the UK, which I think matches what you're saying in, in the USA, uh, more or less. But but again, that, that's just about the um, the scattering of the, of the distribution, I think. Um, so yeah, I'd agree with that. Any more questions we have? Thank you. So, so sorry, just to summarise. So, in terms of how much goes back to, say, Mexico, if if you buy hundred dollars worth of cocaine in the states, maybe something like twenty twenty ish dollars is finding its way back to Mexico, roughly. Hello, hi, um, Jorge from uh, IDPC as well. Um, currently in Chining. Um, uh, my question was: um, you've mentioned in passing um, alternative development. Uh, so basically substituting illicit crops um, and from illicit crops such as coca, poppy, um, just um, sort of creating spaces for illicit crops. I was wondering, um, well, you, you've established that that doesn't work in terms of reducing supply, but to what extent does it, do you think it works in order to provoke, um, to bring about development. So for example, in instances of, um, uh, one mentioned the uh, current peace agreement in Colombia, uh, which is which has actually um, tried or is trying to bring about these alternative development programs. Um, to what extent do you think it's helpful uh, to address the supply problem in this? Thank you. you mean by by um, providing alternative things for farmers to grow? And yes, exactly. Yeah, I well, I mean, Juan certainly knows a lot more than I do about Colombia, so I'll, I'll pass over to him in, in a second. But the um, I, I think it's certainly worth doing. If if you're going to say to farmers you can no longer grow this, then it, it's helpful to point them in the direction of something else. Um, but the my my worry about that um, idea is is simply that, as I say, the the, the the buyers of the coca leaf, i.e. The, the drug cartels that transport the stuff, are in a position to outbid almost any other crop. So the risk is that you set up this nice program allowing them to grow um, tomatoes or, or chickens or whatever, and within a few months you find that they're back on the coca leaf and being paid a, a fraction more to do so. So, uh, you know, it's, it's I think probably governments have a responsibility to... Uh, point farmers in the direction of, of other options um, and I'm sure it, you know, it has some effect but we shouldn't be naive about the power that the cartels have to, to raise their price just a bit and I think cocaine is nearly always going to be more profitable than, than chickens or, uh, <laughs> or tomatoes so that, that's the difficulty um, I'm not, not kind of against the thing but it's, I think it's, it's a policy that has its flaws um, but, but you, you may know more no, I, I entirely agree. Um, my my uni dissertation was on um, the European Union's alternative development programs in the Andes, and 
um, trying to find out to which extent they had had the counter narcotics effects that was um, that they were premised upon. Um, my conclusion then, and I think it's still the same. Yeah, development, rural development is is important, and and I'm all for um, the state doing its best to provide for citizens. Um, I I don't think it's a counter narcotics tool. Um, I think it's it's been made into one, um, but overall it it has virtually no impact on on the drug trade. It might it might displace. Um, um, production into other areas. Um, I mean, the, bizarrely, uh, in the cases that I um, studied, it did exactly the opposite because the European Union had um, this very, I think, adequate conditionality, um, non-conditionality um, uh, policy whereby um, farmers could join the program without having to destroy coca crops and ultimately in in the medium term, they would. Uh, that was the commitment. But in the period between the initial agreement uh, and the next, say, two, three, even five years, um, coca crops actually increased in some of the zones because um, the government, the Colombian government, and, and in, in other cases, in the Peruvian government, had agreed to allow these spaces uh, create these spaces of non-enforcement for the EU to uh, then um, uh, develop its unconditional um, alternative development program. So yeah, and all in all, I, I think the rural development is extremely important. Um, I have no faith in it making any sort of dent in in the overall production of coca or cocaine. I'm still liking Tom's line of cocaine's more profitable than chickens. I think that needs to be some sort of strap line somewhere along the legalisation line. So I'm going to wrap up now. So I'm going to hand over to Neil to give a bit of a wrap up. What do you think on all this? Yeah, it's been um, fascinating just listening to um, the, the, about the economics across the world, isn't it? And I, I'm, I'm struck by how similar it is to the sort of microeconomics here that, that actually the market here is controlled with, with violence and there's the same kind of same kind of issues here as, as they are in the production countries. It's just with the thin end of the same wedge. It's just worse over there, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's fascinating. And Juan, where can we find you, your work, what you do, what happens at IDPC? Yeah, so if you want to follow IDPC, there's idpc.net. That's our website. But also we have um, quite a broad social me range of social media channels. Um, we're on Twitter as IDPCNet, we're on Facebook as International Drug Policy Consortium, and we have a parallel um, set of uh, channels in Spanish. Um, so yeah, that, that would be the best way. And Tom, do you, are you leaving it on the shelf now, the drugs issue, or are you doing more with it? What's, what's your immediate future? I think for the time being, I'm um, uh, sticking with this book. I mean, uh, my, my job at The Economist now actually is editing the Britain section. So I'm currently obsessed with Brexit and, and all that <laughs> stuff. So uh, I don't know if that's worse or better than the international drugs business. But um, uh, no, this, is, this is my last word on drugs for the time being. So thank you so much for coming and have a great night. Bye. Thank you so much to all the guests on that one. It was awe-inspiring listening to just such expertise. Thank you so, so much. And while we're on thank yous, of course, we got to thank the producers of this show, Nikki, Tristan and John. Thank you to all you do. Thank you to John Harris at the Distraction Pieces Network for all you do. And also, thank you to Scooby's Pip for having us on the Distraction Pieces Network. And make sure you listen to all of the Distraction Pieces Network shows. There's no excuses for not. They are genuinely fantastic. Though. They really are. And also, of course... Keep an eye out for Say Why to Drugs, Dr. Susie Gage's new book. It's going to be coming out soon, and we'll keep you updated on that, hopefully. And on that note, I think we can say goodbye. There's another episode coming up soon. As you can imagine, it's fantastic because the guests truly make this podcast. So thank you so much to everybody that's been involved. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay Seldom stray. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.